What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the Live Alive podcast. Hey, everybody. It's Pez. Jeremy. It's Chris. And where's Dylan? Um, actually, I've heard that he's, he's with the feds. He, he was called into a court case, a federal court case, and he was declared uh, by both sides to be worthy of being a juror. Actually, today, we're going to be talking about why in the world three white guys went to Memphis, which is a question anyone should ask themselves. All the time. All the time. It is the home of Elvis, but... Did we see anything about Elvis? We saw Memphis? nothing about Elvis. I really wanted to go to Graceland, but we just didn't have the time. We almost didn't make it to Memphis because our friend Scott brought us to this awesome place in the airport. We got all this free food. We were supposed to pay to get into this like Sky Club thing. We just walked right through there. They thought we belonged there. Uh, you know, a few plates of food in, we realized, oh man, we got 30 minutes to catch our flight. So, no big deal. No big deal. So we run back out. We try to go through TSA pre-check. Of course, they close down TSA pre-check right as we get there. So then we have to go through the whole line, and we almost missed our flight. Yeah, but we actually used the disabled line. I don't know if you guys remember that. I think Jeremy jumped into <laughs> this. There was one part of the line that had no line, so we just jumped into it, and no one asked any questions. Look, so I have it. zero ethics when it comes to airport um, clearance. So I just go where I need to go. You know, <laughs> well, we had to get where we needed to go. We were going to miss the flight to Memphis. Yeah, we made it though. We yeah. made it, and then we were. Well, we had a super important interview. Memphis. Yeah, <laughs> I think this is actually the reason we went to Memphis. When we started the podcast, and I came on board, I was really excited about this thing called MLK Fifty, and it was a 50th anniversary of the, when uh, Martin Luther King was shot in Memphis, and they're having this big Christian conference there called MLK, MLK Fifty, and they're also having this like civil rights kind of at the museum uh, commemoration of 50 years since he's been shot at the place he was shot. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, if we're, if we're chasing down this abundant life, one, let's go where the people are going, um, and let's go and hear about a guy who apparently lived an extremely abundant life, mm-hmm. MLK. And so I just felt like it was a good opportunity to get outside of ourselves, meet some people there, and uh, get different perspectives of what the abundant life is. So that was the, like, Kickstarter to get to Memphis, and then when we got there, that's what we're going to talk about today. There really was a heaviness in the city. You mm-hmm. could you could tell that the first day we woke up in Memphis, there was um, almost like a historical heaviness, but also a tension in the city, mm-hmm. which I think it just exists in Memphis in general. Yeah. But the fact that it was exactly 50 years since the greatest civil rights leader of our time was assassinated, right. there, was, there was something... Uh, special and honoring uh, towards Dr. King in the city during this time. Mm. Part of the reason we went is because beforehand we had lined up an interview with Dr. John M. Perkins, who is a hero of mine. So I can't wait to introduce him and talk about him. But one of the first things we talked about was getting some good barbecue. Because when you're in Memphis... I, I hadn't had barbecue until I sunk my teeth into those ribs. Just amazing. See, Cozy Corner literally is a cozy corner 
kind of restaurant. Like you walk in, the lady, whoever owns it for how long, she's still there talking with the customers. She's wearing a hat that says, I love Jesus. And she's like 80 years old, a trucker hat. Trucker hat. <laughs> Has spilled a, a cup of Coke everywhere and she wouldn't let you clean it up. She like yelled at you when you tried to clean it up. She's like, you get out of here now, you know? But another highlight, and we can get into this a little bit more later, but there was a family that owned the Lorraine Motel, which is where Dr. King was shot. We got to speak to the daughter of the owners. The lady that happened to be working at the front desk of the hotel where the conference was taking place, we, we walked up just to get some information and you know, just struck up a conversation with her. And mm. a few questions later, it turns out she was the niece of the Bailey family who owned the Lorraine Motel. And I don't know if you've ever been to the National Civil Rights Museum, anyone who's listening in Memphis. It's, it's actually at the motel. Right? Yeah, so they, after this happened, it became like a, a holy ground for the civil rights movement. And they've built the back four-fifths of it into this awesome museum, kind of, kind of explaining what the civil rights movement was, where it began from like slavery, to, through the Ku Klux Klan and hate groups, through civil rights movement, through Jim Crow's, through all this stuff. It's amazing, and it's really powerful. Like, we got caught up there and probably stayed there way too long. We had work to do. One side of the street is the hotel itself, and then across the street is the boarding house that um, James Earl Ray mm. was in when he actually shot mm -hmm. Dr. King. And you yeah. can go up in there, and there's all this information about the time, I even have the gun that was mm -hmm. supposedly used, and uh, the window that he shot out has never been closed. Pez and I were a little bummed because we were stuck in the press room while you guys were doing that. We were trying to track what, what, with what was going on at the conference so that we could know the people we were about to interview, what they were saying at the conference. But then we, we left that room, we met Miss Diane sitting at the front desk, and uh, Diane led us to Bailey Pharmacy. It was the first black-run pharmacy in Memphis. We jump in an Uber and we walk into the Champion Pharmacy. And when we get in there, Charles Champion is sitting in a chair. Uh, the security guard kind of led us to Charles Champion. And when you walk in, you could actually hear a video. There's an audio recording of Charles giving a Sunday school class. He was the first black pharmacist in Memphis. So we had a chance to talk with Charles, but then he said, who you really want to talk to is my wife. And she was gracious enough to take us in a back room uh, and just sit, sit us down, and we asked her some questions. And it was fascinating to hear her story. Let's play a little clip from that back room with Caroline Bailey Champion. I think the first question would be, where were you on April 4th 1964, or 1968. Okay, when this happened, I was at work. My, my husband was at his place in employment, so was I. Uh, I guess we got home about five. At, I think it happened around six. My mom, I, we went home. My mom called me and she, very excited, you know, uh, Carolyn, Dr. King, Dr. King just got shot, you know. So I um, said, oh, I said, oh my gracious. I said, well, we on the way. So she told me, no, don't try to come down here because there are, uh, uh, you know, policemen everywhere. Say, don't come try to come down here. I'm okay. My daddy had gone to work and she was there. So she and I talked, I guess, every 15 minutes. I wanted to make sure, you know, everything was going okay with her. I guess we did this for about a couple of hours. 
So after we kind of slowed down on the phone call, maybe we were going to make it, you know, in 30 or 30 minute time. So my next door neighbor called me and she said, Carolyn, she said, hi, is your mother? I said, oh, she's fine. Uh, I, we've been talking to about every 10 or 15 minutes. So that sparked me to make another phone call. So I called. And when I called, uh, we had been talking from the well, you'd have to know, I was raised in that building, and we had our living quarters. So we had a switchboard, and I called the switchboard, so the little lady that was working, and I asked my mother, she said, Carolyn, I don't know, she went in her room, and she said she'd been in there quite a while. Why call in there? And I did, and I didn't get an answer. So that's what... Um, well, it kind of, you know, excited us. So I told my husband, I said, uh, child, we're going to have to get down there. So to try to make things easier, we called, he called the police uh, department downtown to let him know who we were and that we were trying to get to my mom, you know, who had been uh, stricken or whatever. At the time, we didn't know what was what. But by the time, we were able to get there, but it looked like to me he was driving 10 miles out, you know, it was slow, you know. So he, um, when we left, we didn't have any problems, so they might have alerted the officers on our way. Well, by the time we got there, someone, they had, had to open up her, you know, her room, and um, they had taken her to the hospital. So we left the hotel and went straight to the hospital. She had had an aneurysm and she never regained consciousness wow. after then, you know. Because as a matter of fact, um, she had the aneurysm April the 4th and she she died the day Dr. King was buried, which was April the 9th. That was, a, that, was that day for us. Our listeners, our, our hope for them and, and for us is that we would be able to chase down the abundant life that so Jesus talks about in John chapter 10. Mm-hmm. He says, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest. And so I'm curious from your perspective, um, what is the abundant life? What do you think the abundant life is? I think the abundant life is everybody uh, trying to get together as one. You know, um, you know, maybe 30 years ago, you would not have come and sat down and talked to me. I'm glad you had the freedom, you felt the freedom, freedom to come in and talk with us, you know. Uh, I, I just want everybody to look at each other as one. Mm-hmm. It seems like you're a person that's really figured out how to bring forgiveness into your life. I try. I try to. Uh-huh. One last question is, how did you experience um, forgiveness, and primarily the giving of forgiveness, um, around the time when Dr. King was killed? Like, what was it like to have to do that? I don't think I ever really held um, any, how would I say, animosity against it was a thing that happened. I was so sorry it happened. I hated it happened where it did. But uh, I just think we pray. Uh, what was the name? James Earl Ray. I just felt like he needed prayer. If he didn't do it, whoever did it just need prayer. You know. I feel like he, if he's the one who did it, they say he's gone. Uh, I just hope something in his heart, you know, before he left here, that he could have thought, and if, you know, if he did it, he, he could repent, 
you know, by himself. Mm -hmm. Wow, what a privilege to get to talk with Miss Bailey Champion. And one of the things that struck me the hardest was it was very apparent that she had no bitterness at all. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. I think most people, if that had happened, if you had lost your mom and then also been just at the epicenter of a national tragedy, um, yeah. that it would just be such a shaking thing. Be, I'd be very angry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it sort of frustrated me to hear her say that she had no bitterness towards the white community at that time. Like, I was angry for her, listening yeah. to her story. And I, it's hard for me to understand someone can go through what her family went through and what the black community went through, especially in Memphis during that time, and, and not hold any sort of bitterness. Yeah. Um, I was asking her about it, too, when we were sitting there, and she said that at the time, many black churches in the South in particular were actually teaching people what it was to follow Jesus in the midst oh. of that. In yeah. fact, they were talking about what the abundant life was and how there's a correlation between the abundant life and people who suffer, yeah. and yeah. that Jesus is with those who are suffering, and so much so that they began to see themselves, black people in those times uh, and through these churches were beginning to see themselves as the ones who were blessed and that the white people who were so filled with hatred were somehow not blessed. Yeah. Even mm -hmm. though on the outside, the wealth and the economic prosperity and what seemed like the upper hand in society yeah. looks like uh, white people were blessed. But through Jesus's teachings, they began to pray mm -hmm. for their enemies. Yeah, I learned a lot from her. I learned a lot from a lot of the people we talked about. Um, I don't know if I would ha be able to have the same response. I the hope, strength of that is yeah, unreal. I'd hope that God would give me the grace to forgive people and not hold bitterness uh, in that way. But it was challenging and it was, it was refreshing to be taught how to live the kingdom life by no these kidding. people we talked to. I mean, no kidding. And what's insane is you're feeling that 50 years later. Mm. Like... You didn't have the like whole experience yeah. of the whole lead up, the whole like you years didn't know and years what the future held. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. just the I don't know, just the moment itself was so much more intense, and yet these people were still doing that. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Uh, we also went to the Stacks Museum, which was a really I didn't know anything about. Yeah, which was super cool, and just speaking about like the implications of what was happening everywhere. I thought this was a really cool what is, story. What is the Stax Museum? So the Stax Museum apparently was a, a black-owned um, kind of, it started, I think, with some gospel music, but then went into soul music. And it, it was like an enterprising uh, production studio, kind of basically being the first to market mm -hmm. with soul music. They, they called it, what was, the, what was that community called? It was called like Soul Town or something like that. What? Soulville. Soulville. They called that whole area, the couple blocks around the Stax recording studio, Soulville. And people like Aretha Franklin, yeah. uh, pretty sure the OJs came out of that area. Yep. And there's there a high school down the street, um, Booker T. Washington High School. And a lot, a lot of those black musicians weren't paid enough in the clubs they played at in, in Memphis. So they had to become teachers there. So a lot of famous soul musicians came out of that high school because these famous soul musicians who were not getting paid for what who of what their music was worth had to teach there so they were teaching all these young kids how to play soul yeah. music That's and so, so cool. people like Otis Redding came out of that yeah <laughs> so crazy well i'm going to read this i took i took a photo of this i'm going to read it from the stacks museum 
but it, it said on April 4th, 1968, Studio A at Stax Records was a busy place. Shirley Walton, a recently signed singer from Baytown, Texas, was cutting a new song by Al Bell, Booker T. Jones, and Eddie Floyd titled Sin Peace and Harmony Home. Bell had written the song specifically as a personal gift for Dr. King, with whom he had marched in Georgia in the early 1960s and had maintained a friendship. Some 16 takes into the session, when Walton had uh, still not gotten the song exactly the way Bell wanted it, songwriter Homer Banks burst in and said that Dr. King had been killed nearby at the Lorraine Hotel. On the very next take, with tears streaming down her face, Walton delivered the song. Stax put out a limited release of the single on its Enterprise label, and Bell gave copies to Coretta Scott King. After he had the lyrics read into the congressional record, Bell destroyed the master tapes as a sign of respect to Dr. King's memory. Mm. What we found out going to that museum was that the Lorraine Motel was a really important place for all the Stax musicians. Mm -hmm. Because this, there was no AC, and the studio would get so hot in the middle of the day. Um, there'd be white and black musicians and producers working together. And there was really only one place in the area they could go to be together as white and black friends, and it was the Lorraine Motel. So they would go take a dip in the pool, eat lunch at the Lorraine, and towards evening come back to the studio when things would cool down. Mm -hmm. And so here this happens right down the street, right in the middle of a recording, mm -hmm. just taking the breath out of the singer. I mean, mm -hmm. I can't even imagine how it felt. Yeah, I can't either. But that's kind of like the disposition of Memphis in general. It's a really interesting place because it's still predominantly black. There's like this historical significance to the city on multiple levels. Um, but then, yeah, there's still a lot of brokenness and a lot of hopelessness still there right now. And so it set up an a interesting contrast to what the event was day of. Um, mm. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about some of our you know, highlights, some of the things that we really liked. But then there was also, we were conflicted being there. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you guys. I definitely was. There were some things that were happening that I was like, I don't this feels wrong. Um, and specifically, one thing for me was like the day of and the commemoration, there were so many people talking on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel and like thousands and thousands of people were out there in the streets. Um, and people were just kind of sharing, uh, I don't know what their motive was, but just to supposedly honor Dr. King uh, before at 6.01 when he got shot, they were going to ring the bell 39 times across the city as a sign of respect because he was 39 years old. Um, but it seemed like, I, I was getting really frustrated personally. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people were using it to platform themselves mm -hmm. as the next, the next wave of Dr. King. So they would say things like, if Dr. King was alive today, he would be 100% behind my message. And I was just like, mm. that's such BS. Mm. I hate that this is, ha like of all the times and all the places do not platform yourself and your mission and what you're doing yeah. above honoring the person we're here to honor. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, it, it was just really frustrating. And then there was other things too where, you know, like there's a, a bunch of different religious leaders there. And so, you know, there's um, uh, rabbis and imams and priests and preachers and whatever. Um, but they all, they all held claim to like Dr. King as their own, which I, I actually like in one way because it's like, it's a common 
human thing that we want flourishing of humans. Mm -hmm. But another way, like the imams would keep calling like Dr. King, Brother Martin. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, uh, is he your brother? Like it, mm. it just, like sometimes it feels like we just, you know what I'm saying? Like we just wipe out like differences and we don't even like focus on it just to like push forward like, oh, we're unified or we're not unified. Mm -hmm. Like, There's so it just felt There's something disingenuous weird. about um, not acknowledging differences. Right. Like if, if, you, if you just say there are no differences, it doesn't mean that there really are no differences. We can't just go, there are no differences and like right. wave our hand. Mm -hmm. um, I think the differences in some ways are really important for us to acknowledge and to actually really take to heart why those differences are there. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the whole issue anyway of racial divide or economic divide that's taking place in our country. Or, you know, even in some cases with sexuality today, like those differences that are there, mm -hmm. it's important to acknowledge them because if we don't, it's like anything else. Like if we bury our feelings, yeah. eventually something's going to cause it to explode. Yeah. And I think in some ways today, part of the reason that this is such an intense thing is we have tried to bury it, mm -hmm. you know, as a culture. Yeah, we try and like, and this is, this is the, uh, I think this is the rub of everything, is that there's this, there's this trying to acknowledge the past for what it is and move forward. And then some people are like, we can't move forward until we actually acknowledge what happened in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's these two sides constantly rubbing together in that. Yeah. Um, and so, and I felt the rub being in Memphis. Mm -hmm. Like you, you just felt people wanting to spring forward mm -hmm. and you felt people like, hey, I don't think you actually understand mm -hmm. the, the experiences and consequences of what's happened in the past to lead us to right now. And mm -hmm. we, until we know that, we can't actually move forward. Yeah. Because then we're just moving forward on a false promise. And people are sort of all over the map. So if you're, you know, if you're 35 years old and white living in America, right. it's tempting to think, man, racism was something that happened back then. Mm. I heard some things about it in school sure. and man, that was terrible. But aren't we so much farther ahead right. now and can't we just move on? Yeah. But then there's the side of all of those aspects that haven't been acknowledged. And if as a black person, just walking into a room full of white people, you have no way of knowing who does acknowledge it, who actually has a a perspective mm. that can even, you know, begin to acknowledge what that felt like, what it felt like to have, you know, not just my parents, but my grandparents and, and their parents and what they experienced and how those things have affected mm -hmm. life yeah. all the way up until 2018. Yeah. And so I... I just think it's really important for us to figure out how to engage. Yeah. And for me, you know, as a white guy going into Memphis, you could feel that tension, mm -hmm. right? I mean, even just getting into an Uber car mm -hmm. with oh, a black yeah. driver, there were a couple of times where they, you could sense displeasure at the fact that three or four white guys just jumped mm -hmm. into an Uber. It was crazy is you could also sense the displeasure when we had a white driver. He was trying to figure out why we cared so much about what was going on in the city that week. Yeah. 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 It, really, the South is is lost in time mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And so, I mean, I know because of my friends who've told me that they experience racism 
racism everywhere in the United States, but it's magnified in the South. Mm -hmm. And if you've never experienced that tension, you should go to Memphis. You should feel it and not get angry about it. Like when we were in the car and you, you could very clearly tell that lady did not want us in the car with her. Instead of getting angry, I tried to sit there and feel it. Mm -hmm. Because this is what people feel every day. Yeah. I'm just feeling it right now. Mm. I don't usually get treated that way. But people live life treated that way. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting experiment. You know? like, I think in the, in the most basic sense, the real um, underbelly of Memphis was experienced when we took Ubers everywhere. Because mm -hmm. we probably had like six Uber drivers over the course of our time there. And each one was different in this regard. Like some would be really willing to talk and just engage and have fun with us. Some were like, I don't care about this thing. Others were, it, we just felt the tension that they didn't want us in the car. Others were confused. You know, it was just interesting that it was like, a, it was like an overall feeling of the city yeah. split through six Uber drivers. Yeah, and I think with us, part of this whole experiencing the abundant life or chasing down the abundant life is about listening, connecting, and helping. So for mm -hmm. me, this was a huge exercise in just listening. Yeah. Like going with my eyes and ears wide open, ready to just see, experience, and yeah. feel what are people feeling, and knowing that we're going to get to hear from Dr. John M. Perkins yeah. made that possible for me right. in some ways because yeah. I knew that we were going to get to speak with someone who had not only lived through some of the most harrowing experiences from the 50s and 40s even because mm -hmm. uh, he's been around since 1930 it's when he was born so crazy yeah it's unbelievable so he's lived through it all and then come out the other side of that as an 87 year old man as a scholar who has 15 honorary doctorates mm -hmm. and a person who has a foundation that he's created who's gone in and out of the south like he left the south uh, because of racism. And then when he met Jesus, Jesus called him back into Mississippi. So part of his story was that in 1946, uh, he and his brother were home. They had served in World War II. They were veterans and, you know, had spent time on the European front. Mm. And over there, the racism wasn't the same. Like they were treated with dignity. And then coming back to Mississippi, having to get used to almost putting that straight jacket back on. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one night they were at a movie theater and the town marshal from his hometown in Mississippi walked up and just shot Dr. John Perkins' brother mm -hmm. and just killed him right there. And there was no trial. There was, you never heard of it again. There was no such thing as punishment. Yeah, or, I think, I think uh, a, a white... American had never been charged with the killing of a black American until, was it like 1970? Yes. I think that's in Mississippi. But in yeah. Mississippi. Okay. Yeah, so the laws nationally changed before they changed in certain states. And so in Mississippi, one of the things that Perkins talks about in one of the videos you can find on YouTube is that uh, blacks were not fully considered human beings in Mississippi until mm -hmm. 1970. Now, this is 1946 when this took place. And so when that happened, it was so traumatic. He, he just said, I've got to get out of here. Mm. And so about a year later, he moved to California. And um, he ended up getting a good job and having a really nice life out there in some ways. And he had a son who started 
he started having go to a Sunday school class and he didn't know Jesus at the time. And he recognized that something that his son at the age of four was learning about life and about character was something that he was not teaching his son. And so he got jealous Mm -hmm. because he's such a competitive guy, which we saw that right away. And um, he he decided, I got to do a better job than this church does. So he starts going to church. Mm -hmm. And that's how he heard the gospel for the first time and met Jesus. And so in the early 1950s, Perkins becomes a Christian and Jesus calls him back into the middle of the war zone, Mm -hmm. right back into the hard part of living in Mississippi and beginning to deal with the race issue face to face. And so this is like right before Rosa Parks, like 1954, 1955, when he moves back there mm. and begins to work on community development and has been doing so ever since. Yeah, he moved at a very interesting time because I think it was right after Emmett Till happened. And so that was one of the biggest things that caused this stir and this movement and outcry. So Emmett Till, when you mentioned that this morning before uh-huh. we started recording, yeah, I'd never heard that story. Yeah, yeah, so, I had heard it, but I, I didn't even remember like exactly hit, what had happened. Yeah. So a little backstory on me is for the past six years, I was working at a church in Jacksonville, Florida, and it was a, I guess you call it the multicultural church. It's really trendy right now. Everyone's wanting to do that, but it, it really was an amazing mix of not only racial but socioeconomic classes and um, to me that was like one of the biggest learning curves I've ever had my whole life of just realizing I don't see things correctly or at least I see them very limitedly Mm -hmm. and there's so much more to be seen Um, and one of those things I, I realized really early on is that it seemed like every black person treasures the story of Emmett Till and knows it like the back of their hand and most white people are like, I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, I, sure. Or maybe yeah, something that happened in Mississippi yeah. or whatever. And it's like, well, how, what is the divide here? Why does one people group hold it in such high esteem to be a treasured memory of history and another being like, yeah, sure, it's, it's something that happened. Um, but for black people, as far as my understanding goes, it's like this was one of the catalysts to really kick off the civil rights movement. and. What happened was there's a, a boy from Chicago that was visiting resi- uh, there's a boy from Chicago that was visiting relatives in Mississippi. He was 14 years old, and apparently he went to a grocery store. And on the way out, there's a 21 year old white woman um, that there was a conversation that took place, and uh, the white woman claimed that he said something inappropriate. So then her husband got some one of his friends and some other people tracked him down, went into the middle. In the middle of the night, went to his house, took him out of the house, put him in the back of the pickup, took him to a barn, and just basically tortured him, like mutilated him, and then they tied him up to something and threw him off a bridge. So mm-hmm. he drowned in a river. And he, they found him three days later, and they sent him back up to Chicago, and the mother decided to have an open casket to just show the world mm. the racism and the, the struggle of African-Americans still in you know, the greatest nation in the world. And so all black newspapers and other like media outlets kind of picked this picture up and it, and it evoked white empathy and sympathy. And it really was one of the ch- 
first cogs in the machine that got the civil rights movement started. And of course, the two guys didn't get charged. They got let off of kidnapping and murder. And because of Double Jeopardy, a year later, they actually told a magazine, they're like, yeah, we killed him. And so this like national outcry of like, how is this possible? We don't live in a free and just society. Like this is the prime example. Mm. And so it was just one of the like stepping stones to move forward and really mm -hmm. fight for the cause. Anyway, just that in of itself, learning that, it, it shows me, one, that I really don't have a firm grasp on the, the totality of American history, let alone history in general. Yeah, because I didn't learn about this in school. Mm. No, it's not taught in school, yeah. but it's taught in black homes. Mm. And it's a, it's a memory passed down. Like, like Jews will pass down, you know, the memories of, you know, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all these great stories in the Old Testament. But it's like, you almost have to do that to keep it alive, mm -hmm. in a way. And so, just in that, just feel, when, you, when you come to understand, like, okay, not only are there things I don't know, but they're extremely important to other people. And other people I actually have a relationship with and care about. It, it changes your posture to be like, man, I, I want to know more. Mm -hmm. Like, tell me more. Yeah. In the past couple of episodes, we've talked a lot about this idea of listening, connecting, and helping. And that, you know, part of living the gospel and telling the gospel to other people is just engaging the world. And so listen, connect, and help. And this for us was a huge exercise in just listening, just going and learning, yeah. spending time with we, people. We are not experts on this by any means, but we really felt like just immersing ourselves in Memphis in a time as this, April 4th, 2018, would be a really good way to discover more of the stories of history in our own country, but of um, forgiveness and the kingdom life that some people are living out that have lived horrific stories and horrific, have lived through horrific parts of history. And it, like I said earlier, it's challenging to me. I don't know if I would be able to forgive the way some of these people had forgiven. Sure. And I think it goes back to the theme of this whole, what we've done so far, is like the abundant life is chasing down buried treasure. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. the phrase that keeps coming up. And in Memphis, you look on the outside and you're like, well, I don't know if any treasure's here. But when you actually start digging around, mm -hmm. it's everywhere. <laughs> you meet people it's, like it's Caroline. It's unbelievable. And Charles and... Yes. And Diane, you know. And I think part of the abundant life is just stepping out into uncomfortable spots and stepping out into areas and with people that you, you don't actually know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, why, to me, it's so boring to talk to someone that you actually agree on everything. Mm -hmm. That you're like, okay, we're in a line with this. Yeah, theologically, oh, your experiences align with mine. Oh, you went to private school. That's great. Good, let's take a nap. Oh, yeah, right. You know, and, but then when you get around people where the mystery is like, I don't even know how we're going to connect. Hmm. Like, I don't even know what we have in common, if anything. But we're both humans, so there has to be some humanistic commonality between us. And then just connecting on the level of like, wow, your experiences are just as real as mm -hmm. mine. And then just moving from that to like evoking empathy and connecting with them mm -hmm. in certain ways. It's like, but I think the idea of even going to Memphis for us was the reason why we went is because we felt there was life to be had that we didn't yeah. know about. 
that other people might be able to speak in in a way and experience um, that we've never heard. And that's our first interview there was with John M. Perkins. <sighs> and he invited us <laughs> into his hotel room. He was just chilling, reading the newspaper when we walked in. <laughs> and I, I don't know. Maybe we should play a little bit of it now because we're running out of time for this episode. Well, I mean, Dr. Perkins is a national treasure. Yeah. He is someone that um, I'm pretty sure he knew Dr. King. He did. He had met Dr. King. Uh, he had been beaten almost to the point of death. His brother was killed. And somehow, some way, he found a way to turn all of that into good. Well, you remember during the interview, he actually refers to Dr. King as Martin. Yeah. There's not a lot of people that can do that. No, yeah. no. <laughs> Especially at this conference when everybody's there to be like, Dr. Yeah. King, Dr. King. Yeah, yeah. And, well, I wish everybody was, because right. not everybody was. That's but, a different topic for a different day. Yes. But also what was cool is he's, what, is 87? Yes. He, he said he's one year younger than Martin Luther King, mm. which kind of put it in perspective for me, like, oh, wow, if Mar yeah. MLK had lived, he could be sitting in this he room. He could be, well, maybe. That'd be awesome. What would that conversation be like for another day? But... Just the idea that, you know, it's not like a long time ago mm -mm. that people were alive who are his age. It was a special interview. I think it's one of those interviews that I'm going to keep for the rest of my life and show my kids. Yeah. And I'm just thankful to, to have a, had a part in it. Yeah. One of the great texts in the Bible is, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And so we need to look for joy in this life out of pain because when it becomes pain for others, Martin said this, it becomes vicarious and redemptive. And so we gotta look at suffering as a virtue. We sort of say it too quickly without pain there's little gain. In my life, I have learned more in pain. I think that's why uh, most liberators in human liberation, all liberation for a better life, usually it comes at the jailhouse when your freedom have been cut off. Martin Luther King learned what he learned. In prison, I learned what I learned about suffering in a Brandon jail when I was tortured. That ought to be enough, but no people don't know what torture is. And it was in that Brandon jail, I saw the ugliness of white racism. But I also saw the ugliness of my black solution. Because if I'd had a an atomic hand grenade, I would have pulled it. I saw that we was trapped. I learned later that we was culturally trapped. And I said, Lord, I want to preach a love, a gospel that's bigger than my blackness. I want to preach a love that is bigger than racist superiority and supremacy. They are trapped. I want to preach a gospel that can burn through this. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So that was just a little teaser. Yeah. And on the next episode, we're going to give you the full interview. Mm. And it's just yeah. nonstop goodness. <laughs> mm. Like we talked to several people and all of it was great. Yeah. I mean, it was not only extremely helpful, but just like life-giving yes. and <laughs> joyful. Yeah, so thanks so much for listening this week and we look forward to giving you more of the time with Dr. Perkins next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.